Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. We've been in a series in Ephesians going through essentially the entire letter. And so we're in a very short section at the very beginning of chapter 6 at the end of the book. Uh, And so I'm going to read this short section and then Steve will come up. Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Thanks, Danny. Great to be with you. My name is Steve. And uh, nice to be here. We're finishing off a series in the book of Ephesians. Um, one of the ways you can distinguish between someone that's a genuine Jesus follower and someone that is merely religious is to see how what they believe impacts, uh, or whether what they believe impacts their daily life, or whether it just impacts their religious duties, such as going to church and saying prayers. And so what the Apostle Paul here is doing in his letter to the church in Ephesus is he's teaching us how to apply what we believe, or better, who we now are in Christ, to all areas of life, all spheres. So in chapters 1 to 3 of the letter, if you've been with us, you'll know he's outlining, you know, we have this new purpose, this new identity, this new community, this new way of living, because we are new in Christ, chapters 1 to 3. And then chapters 4 to 6, he says, so how do you live out this all of your life? He says, he starts in chapter 4 with the church community, and a lot about, you know, forgiving and loving and things. And then he goes, last week we saw into the home, and he says, well, this is how husbands and wives need to deal with each other, now that we're new in Christ. And then he says, today, well, mums and, you know, mums and dads and children, next week it's in the workplace, and then it's going to be in terms of doing battle uh, spiritually for Christ and, and facing the world around us. Um, and today we're going to learn four things about how the gospel impacts our homes And we're going to learn the value of children in the life of the church, the priority of Christ and his family, the church, the call on children to honor and obey their parents, and the call on parents to to care for and kind training and instruction of their children. So let's go through these. The value of children in the life of the church. What every commentator says is absolutely remarkable about this passage is that Paul addresses children. Children. Obey your parents in the Lord. In other words, there must have been children in the church as the letter to the Ephesians was read out, that when he said, husbands, love your wives, the husbands said, oh, that's what I've got to do. And he says, children, children would have ears, would have perked up and go, oh, this is what we've got to do. But for Paul to address children is just remarkable in a culture where children were so, uh, had such a low position. So what this tells us is that children are equal members of the church family and are to be treated with dignity and respect. They are disciples of Jesus too, alongside their parents. They need to hear the gospel and be instructed in the faith, as do their parents. It's remarkable. Roman society had a devastatingly low opinion of children, which was why Jesus chose children to say, this is what a model disciple looks like, because they had a low status. Do you remember? Unless you change and become like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes... The lowly position of this child is great in the kingdom of heaven. Why does Jesus use a child to model being a disciple? Because children are weak 
fragile, at the beck and call of everyone in society, especially back then, dependent on others. Jesus is saying, if you want to be part of my kingdom, my family, then you need to renounce self-sufficiency, renounce your pride, renounce self-assertion, renounce your competency, renounce your desire for status, and become like this child, lowly, dependent, accepting a status of no consequence. If you can't do that, you can't enter the kingdom. And just to help you understand how, sig- how insignificant children were in the ancient world, you have to understand how a Roman family worked. Um, a Roman family was ruled by the pater familias, the oldest surviving male. And traditionally, in Roman law, he had the power of life and death over his children. William Barclay, a commentator and a scholar of the, of, of the Roman culture, says a Roman father had absolutely power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in the fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands, for the law was in his hands, and punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. Now, by the first century AD, fathers no longer had the legal right in Roman culture to kill their kids, as they had in earlier earlier, parts of history. But they were still legally able to expose unwanted newborn infants and just leave them to die. That was part of the culture. So can you see how staggering it is? When Paul writes a letter and he says, children, you have equal dignity and worth in this family. No one's going to be left outside, unwanted. As in the ministry of Jesus, so in the early church, children are not to be shunned or pushed aside or ignored. They're to be respected, included, known, loved, cared for, and provided. Do you remember the disciples had imbibed the culture? of their time, and tried to stop children coming to Jesus, you know, those lowly ones, and Jesus rebuked them, do you remember? Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. And so we must do the same here at Christ City Church. Can I ask you, do you know the names of all the children in this church? Could you address them by their first names? Would they know who you are because you spent time with them? Do you take time to be with them, to ask them questions, to play with them, to learn their personality and passions? Do you help their mums and dads when their hands are full and they need an extra pair of hands? Do you get frustrated when the kids make noise and they're running around or they're, in my daughter's case, rolling around, bringing energy and zest to our services? Are you taking opportunities when they arise to share the gospel with the children in this church? Just naturally. Are you being a role model of what a Jesus follower looks like? Our children are growing up in a culture which is very anti-Christian, increasingly so. We need, they need to know that they're going to be loved, supported, and cared for if they make a radical choice to stand for Jesus in their teenage years. And they need to know you're there for them. Let the little children come. Let Christ City Church not hinder them. So firstly... Children are equal members of the church family. We must value them. But secondly, so as to not make idols out of our children and the family, Paul and Jesus talk about the priority of Christ and his family, the church, in our lives. Or put it differently, the nuclear family no longer has absolute claims on us. Jesus and his family do. Remember Jesus' radical teaching on discipleship when he said, anyone who loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus isn't encouraging estrangement of children and parents. Rather, that both children and parents must love him more than they love one another. 
So Jesus is actually relativizing the place of family, which is what Paul is doing when he speaks in and says, I, I actually, you know, in the Lord, do you see that phrase there? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then at the end, he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training instruction of the Lord. Paul is going, no, no, now we're in the Lord. Actually, the Lord can speak into this now, into your family life. He has primary claims. He has absolute obedience. The nuclear family must accept and adapt to Jesus' lordship and his values. Family's still vital. It's a God-given community for nurture and joy and, and all sorts. But Jesus and Paul are throwing down the challenge to us. Your primary place of belonging as a Christian is not your nuclear family, though it's still a very important place. It's Jesus is where you primarily belong and his family. And that's where you'll belong for an eternity. Do you remember Mark chapter 3? Jesus is in a house teaching, and it's crowded, and him and his disciples can't get any food. and They couldn't eat. And his family hear about it, and we're told in verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. This is, you know, Mary and Joseph speaking about Jesus. And they sent someone to call Jesus out, and someone in the crowd came. Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. What did Jesus say? Who are my mother and my brothers? That must have offended Mary. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will, God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Do you see, all of us are first and foremost called to Jesus and his family, the church. The claims of, the, of our nuclear family are not absolute. They take second place to the claims of the kingdom. And that is what Paul is saying here. Parents still need to be parents. Children still need to be children. But the way those roles are performed has been radically changed because you're in Christ now. And he has your ultimate allegiance. And so the question for us today is, how much are you willing to allow the church family here to become your family for the sake of Jesus and his mission? Are you willing not to move back home to be closer to your family when you have kids, but stay in Dublin to seek the prosperity of Dublin? Are you willing to raise kids in Dublin and see CCC as your family if your mum and dad live elsewhere? Are you willing to open up your home and share your lives uh, with others uh, in the church, letting them know your kids, rather than making your home like a castle that no one enters? That's going to be vulnerable. That's going to mean people seeing you being a parent, and you won't always get it right as a parent. This means people seeing your kids and your kids won't always get it right. But that's okay because we're family now. We work through that together. Will you allow people in the church to bring encouragement and challenge to the way you parent as Paul is now? To ask questions to help you see your blind spots as parents. This is challenging teaching. It was when Jesus first said it. It would have been when Paul read, the letter from Paul was read out. The nuclear family no longer has absolute claims on us. Jesus and his family do. Now, pastorally, this is incredibly powerful for those of you where you have challenge in your nuclear family and your nuclear family has let you down. If you have lousy parents or a lousy family, this gives you hope that you have a context with which to build another family and have spiritual mums and dads and aunties and uncles. God is your father. Jesus is your big brother. And you can have a wonderful family of all types of people from all backgrounds, all ages, all ethnic groups. Hallelujah. You're not alone. You can have a family if your own family has let you down. Or if you can't have kids, whether you're unable to as a couple or because you never get married, 
that doesn't mean you don't have a family and you don't have a hope and a future. You have spiritual children and you have nieces and nephews and you can build your life into their lives. This is hugely challenging teaching, but it's pastorally hopeful teaching for so many. So we've learned the value of children in the church community. We've learned the priority of Christ and his family. So let's move on now to the call on children to honor and obey. As I said, just because our allegiance is primarily to Christ and his church, and that comes above the nuclear family, that doesn't mean the nuclear family isn't important. It's God still made us to live in families. They're still vital. So Paul says in verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Do you remember when Jesus was 12 years old? Him and his family went to Jerusalem uh, for the annual Passover festival. And they're coming back, and uh, Mary and Joseph suddenly realize, you know, they would have traveled in large numbers, and the nuclear family could have been quite big. Um, uh, They realize he's missing. And they're like, suddenly panic, and they go back to Jerusalem, and they find him in the temple uh, listening to and asking questions of the teachers of the law. And everyone who saw and heard were astonished, including Mary and Joseph. And Mary says, um, oh, Mary says, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. What does Jesus say? Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Again, probably quite offensive to a mum. In other words, my first allegiance is to God, not to you. And that will become more apparent as Jesus gets older. But then crucially, because he's 12 years old, Luke says, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Jesus obeyed his parents, and he gives us a model that we too must obey our parents until we are of the age and become an adult and therefore no longer live under the care and provision of our parents. We obey them in the same way. So whilst our first allegiance is to God, whilst we are under the roofs of our parents, under their care and provision, we must obey them. But notice our obedience to our parents has limits in the Lord. If your parent is asking you something to do something that the Lord wouldn't ask you to do in terms of a, something moral or something, you, you don't do it because you, you obey them in the Lord. If, you're, if your parents are asking you to do something that Jesus wouldn't condone, you don't have to obey. Your obedience to your parents is in line with your first obedience to Jesus. When those two are compatible, you obey. When they're not, you have reason not to. But it's not just obedience we owe our parents when we're under their care, even once we've left home, which I'm guessing is nearly all of us here, we're to honor them. And Paul quotes the fifth commandment. Verse two, he says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. So even as we get older, we must honor our parents, honor and respect them. Don't despise them, don't curse them, don't mock them, but bless them. Of course, to honor your parents as they get older and you get older doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean you have to like every decision or agree with every decision, but you're still called to honor them. Find ways to respect them at holidays, at gatherings, with phone calls, even on social media. Give credit where credit is due. I learned that from you. And forgive them for the wrongs they have done to you. Honor them. Remember the sacrifices they made for you when you were young. And you you just don't know when you're growing up. And then you become a parent. You're like, oh, the sacrifices they made for me to nurture me. We'll make sacrifices for them as they get older. Honor them. By the way, to honor your parents as you get older also means 
to stop scrounging off them and needlessly relying on them, maybe financially, maybe emotionally, maybe in other ways, but growing up and taking responsibility and learning to provide for yourself if you have the ability to do so. Honoring them means not taking their kindness and care for granted and presuming on them unnecessarily. And another thing, especially for students or young professionals, people that have maybe just left the home but go back a bit, you live away from your parents. To honor your parents means not to resort back to childish ways when you're back under their roof. Don't give in to immaturity. Wash up, clean, help out. Don't give in to bickering. Don't get overly annoyed with them about little things in their lives. Honor them. How are you doing honoring your parents? Even if they failed you, how are you doing? What more could you do? Do you need to honor them by forgiving them and overlooking the things that they've done to annoy you or frustrate you as a, as, as, as a parent? Do you need to honor them by, by growing up and taking on more responsibility and stop presuming on them? Do you need to honor them by remembering them more and being in contact more? So from the call to children, we move to the call to parents. And this is to careful and kind instruction and training of the law. Verse 4 is a wonderfully balanced uh, biblical summary of parenting. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, don't be put off by the fact that Paul appears only to address men. The Greek uh, pateres, if that's how you pronounce it, is used of father and mothers. Like the Spanish word padres is used for parents. Or the Greek word adolphi means brothers and sisters. It's just the way the language works. So it's talking to mum and dad. Now I say this, this verse is wonderfully balanced. Why? Well, traditional cultures are, are strict with children, whereas modern cultures are mainly supportive and allow children on a journey of self-discovery. So the traditional conservative culture says, here are the rules, here are the boundaries, here are the instructions, now obey. So in traditional cultures, parents controlled their kids. And Roman culture was an extreme version of this. There was even lots of literature about how they used to treat them the same way they treated animals. But modern liberal culture says, no, we must be as supportive and affirm our children and not put any restrictions on them and let them find their own way. We must not do anything to contradict our child's emotions, our child's feelings, our child's sense of identity. We must just affirm, affirm, affirm as a child goes on a journey of self-discovery. But Paul here is he challenges both models. The conservative parent who wants to be strict is called to patience and kindness, to not exasperate, to not goad, but to careful, kind instruction. To the liberal parent who wants to affirm no matter what the child's journey of self-discovery, they're called to training and instruction, to direction and guidance. So neither mere control nor mere affirmation is correct in the biblical understanding of parenting. So when Paul says, do not exasperate your children or do not provoke them or do not goad your children into resentment, he's recognizing how delicate a child's personality is. And children must be treated with tenderness, patience, and care. Parents can easily misuse their authority and make unreasonable demands or be overly hard and cruel and suppress the personalities and stop these children developing into who they should be. I read um, the shocking biography of Andre Agassi, whose dad was so obsessed that he'd become world number one in tennis, that from the age of five, he started to strap a tennis racket to his arm so he could hit 2,500 balls a day 
17,500 balls a week and nearly one million balls a year. His dad reckoned that if Agassi, from the age of five, hit a million balls a year, he would tennis world number one. And so um, what he did then was set up this ball machine, which Agassi calls the dragon, which would enable him to, to, hit, the, to, hit, the, uh, to hit all these balls. And so despite being one of the most exciting tennis players in the history of the game, uh, being, becoming world number one, and being one of only a handful of men to win all four Grand Slams and the Golden Slam, including um, the Olympics, Agassi hates tennis. He says that from start to finish, he hates tennis in his biography. Because his father was overbearing and allowed him no self-choice or self-expression, he was forced to play. And reflecting back on the first ever game he loses as a 10-year-old to a guy called Jeff Tarango, who had also become a, a professional tennis player, Agassi says this, after losing his first game at 10 years old, I now have a loss on my record forever. Nothing can ever change it. I can't endure the thought, but it's inescapable, unfallible, blemished, imperfect. A million balls hit against the dragon? For what? After years of hearing my father rant at my flaws, one loss has caused me to take up this rant. I've internalized my father, his impatience, his perfectionist, and his rage, until his voice doesn't feel like my own. It is my own. I no longer need my father to torture me. From now on, I can do it all by myself. Parents, we mustn't get anywhere near that, where we control our children. Don't goad them into resentment. Don't force them down ways they don't want to go. Don't exasperate them. We must be aware and adapt to their different preferences, personalities, and passions as children. And Paul says you must bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now the Greek word Paul uses for bring them up is to nourish and to feed. It's the same word we saw last week when talking about husbands and wives and we must nourish our own bodies. It's the same word, nourish. So this is a tender nourishing, a tender training, a kindness. So here, years before modern psychology emphasized the vital importance of the earliest years of life, the children are fragile creatures needing tenderness and security of love, Paul urges parents in the first century world where children were often treated the same as animals to nurture with gentleness and not control or suppress them. But, and that's the challenge to the, con the conservative traditional parent, but that careful, kind nurturing, Paul says, Training and instruction of the Lord. In, in that, and the words that Paul uses there, trained by discipline, even punishment, and a verbal education. So this corrects a huge mistake modern culture is making when thinking about children. People today assume that children are naturally innocent and pure, and only society teaches them to hate. But it's folly. We know it. Children are naturally self-centered, and they don't understand how other people feel, and they don't know how their behavior affects others. All of those basic basic things must be taught. Whilst we mustn't be domineering and overly controlling like previous generations may have been, we must not become overly passive and non-directive and buy into their modern trend to just let children discover for themselves and, what, and, and let them on their own journey. Yes, children are precious to us. Yes, precious to God. Yes, they're made in the image of God. But the Bible says they're also hereditary sinners. And if you are a parent, just for one or two years, you'll quickly realize the selfishness and folly that is bound up in a child's heart, as well as revealing much of your own selfishness and folly as a parent. And so it is folly, it is stupid to expect children to work out for themselves the moral wisdom of the ages. What makes a, pay a person capable of coming up with a standard of right and wrong is not that their parents taught them exactly right, but that their parents did teach them. 
If their parents held a coherent account of good and evil and tried to impart it, even if later it's rejected in part or by whole by the child, at least they've developed the critical moral faculty that they must have a, 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 you know, a, 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 an account of good and evil. If, if the parent just lets the child grow up in a detached, autonomous self, left to discover for themselves what's right and wrong, that is parental malpractice. We should never avoid doing for our children what our Heavenly Father does for us. Do you remember Hebrews chapter 12? My son, do not make light the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and every ch- everyone goes, undergoes discipline, then you are not illegitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God disciplines us and he chastens us. It doesn't feel pleasant but it produces a harvest of godliness in us if we'll allow him to train us. God, without any irritation, without any ill motives, disciplines us out of love. And so we too must train and discipline and even chasten or punish our children for their good. Now, we'll talk more about this at the parenting seminar next week, and I know there's often a lot of emotion and different views when it comes to disciplining your children. Child abuse and parents abusing their authority is a great evil. And we cannot condone it. But let's not let the pendulum swing too far. There's still a role for disciplining for our child's good. Like our Heavenly Father, we must discipline for the right reasons, not because we're annoyed, not because we're impatient, not because of injured pride, not because we've lost our temper. We discipline our children for their good, not our good, for their growth, not our control. Someone put it like this. When you are disciplining a child, you should have first controlled yourself. What right have you to say to your child that he needs to be disciplined when you obviously need it yourself? Self-control, the control of temper, is an essential prerequisite in the control of others. So we must establish boundaries with consistent consequences to teach our children that they cannot have their own way all the time, that, that, that they owe love and respect to fellow mankind. If parents do not bring carefully controlled, unpleasant consequences to their children's lives, The children will go out into the world and bring far more painful and harmful results to themselves as they discover they cannot have everything their own way. So if you're a parent here today or you want to become a parent, which are you? Are you overly domineering or overly passive? Have you learned to discipline your kids after modeling it in your own life? And it's kindness and it's for their good, not your good. And are you spending time with your children Hours, reading the Bible, teaching them songs, teaching them how to pray, answering their questions, just hours and hours of time with your children, as far as possible daily, a kind of routine around the meal times and around bedtime, whatever works for your family, where you open up some kind of child story, you read it, you talk about it, you pray. So we've learned four things in this passage. The value of children in the life of the church. They're, they're equal, they need to be respected and treated with dignity. You've got to get to know all the kids in this church. The priority of Christ and his family, 
Our ultimate allegiance now is to Jesus and the church, not to our nuclear family. It's a challenging teaching, but it's a hopeful teaching. The call on children, on children to honor and obey their parents. I think all of us, if not most of us, have left the home. So we need to think, how do I honor my parents as they get older? And the call on parents to careful and kind training and instruction of their children. Do you want to stand? I'm going to pray. And I'm going to just pray by thinking about how our Heavenly Father loves and cares for us. Lord, when we uh, think about family, there's some of us here that have, in a sense, family is, um, you know, our family is so good that maybe that they uh, have, you know, we haven't quite understood what it is to put you above our family or our children. And for some of us, our families are so bad that the thought of, of uh, you know, disciplining and things, that brings negative connotations in our minds. So, Lord, we need your help by your spirit to understand again that you're the perfect father who loves us unconditionally, who always has our best in mind, that you never get irritated, you never have a frown on your face of, you know, disgust and annoyance, you're never impatient. You're slow to anger and abounding in love. You forgive us our sins. But Lord, that you do chasten us. You do move us on. And we thank you, Father, that you were so passionate about us becoming your children. That you gave up your son. And that he took the ultimate chastening, the ultimate punishment for our sin. That we could be welcomed in as we sang earlier in the songs. That we can run into your arms like the prodigal son in that famous parable. And know an embrace and know care and love. So I pray, Father, as a church that we would model our being children and being parents. Or being part of this church community on what it is to know you as our father. And Jesus as our big brother. Pray for all of us who are parents here or soon to be parents. Lord, help us. Give us wisdom. And change our hearts that we might be better parents that all of our actions might be about our children's good. And for those of us that are children here with, with elderly parents or, or parents that are getting older, help us to honor them and love them and make sacrifices for them and forgive them where they failed us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.